You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. But we start with some some breaking news. I'm actually a little bit late running into the studio. I thought it was on time. Was was not going to have to rush. Got my run done earlier today than I normally do. Was ready to come into the studio. And then you get two emails in the inbox right before the show starts. One about um, these like racially charged flyers around campus. We have reporters on it. I don't really know what that's about yet, so I won't speculate on it. Uh, but you get that. So I'm like, oh, breaking news. Got to do something about this. And then the second piece, which does concern us, is Kyrie Walker announced just about a half hour ago is going to transfer from Delaware's men's basketball program. He's a sophomore last year, averaged just under four points per game, averaged around two and a half rebounds per game. So it wasn't a huge contributor, but a guy that you looked at as one of these future pieces, just a sophomore, came in last year very highly regarded among that class with Ryan Allen and Kevin Anderson. A lot of people viewed him as the blue chip prospect before we got to see all three of them on the floor. The big news, not big news, I guess, but the news half hour ago, Kyrie Walker will not be with Delaware this season. Yeah, it's we lost a minute, man. That's kind of all he was um, when you had, especially last year, when you had your players like your Ryan Daly's and in the case of later in the season, your Jacob Cushing's when they needed their five-minute break, five-minute breather to recoup themselves, that's where Kyrie Walker stepped in. He started one or two games, but he was mostly that minute man. Give the starters a break. He was good enough to hold his own. But like you mentioned, not the biggest deal, but we just hope that come later in the season when we're really looking for that minute man to save our guys some time, it's not the biggest uh, hurt to us. Played 30 games last year, which was the most of all their freshmen. Started 14 of them. Most of those at the beginning of the season in non-conference play, he kind of fell out of favor yeah, with the rotation. Yeah, play, he was... Right, you mentioned nah. Jacob Cushing took most of his time. Um, you also got just more of the starters, right? You start those guys off at maybe 33, 34 minutes a game, and by the end of the season, Brian Daly's playing 40, 38, yeah. 39, 40 minutes a game, so some of that comes off of what Walker was given. Uh, but is also part of this, you know, last year obviously wasn't a huge piece, but he could turn into something. Like, you lose a guy who has some potential. He's regarded by a lot of guys on the team, as you talk to, as the most athletic player on the team. He's had a couple slam dunks. He's really long, rangy guy that you look at as kind of a prototype body for the switching defenses that we see a lot of times now. That might have not translated last year, but you know, do you miss some of that potential with him, with him walking away from the program right before the season? Yes and no. Uh, I think last year was a good indicator to show that the potential was there. But I think when Inglesby gave him the time to show himself and to prove that he had his moment, especially during that stretch, the Towson home and the Towson away games, especially when Darian Bryant just couldn't hit a shot if you paid him to, that was Kyrie Walker's opportunity to step up, step into that 3-4 wing spot and make his mark. And he really didn't. So, yes, there's potential with him, and I think the Delaware team would have benefited to have him and still be able to unlock that potential, but there's no harm in understanding that, all right, another team can do it, and that's another roster spot, that whether it be this year we gain a transfer or next year we gain a freshman or a new piece that we can unlock their potential. Yeah, it does op- open you up. I didn't think about that aspect to it, another freshman or transfer, because this year Delaware really took advantage of that. They brought a lot of new players into this program, now, they all won't play right away. The three that will are Ithiel Horton and Justin Mutz, the true freshmen who come in as recruits from Inglesby in the class, high school class of 2018, and Ryan Johnson, who's a fifth-year transfer from Mercer. Inglesby told us last week, 24-year-old guy who's going to get some probably even more minutes now without Walker out on the wing. But then they also bring in 
um, the excuse, and Matt Verretto, not Justin Mutz, Matt Verretto, the other freshman, Justin Mutz and Nate Darling, two, two transfers who have to sit out this year but will now count going forward toward that roster space. So you do open up one more flexible uh, spot for Delaware moving forward as they look toward this freshman recruiting class. And, you know, Inglesby has talked about getting fifth-year transfers, and that's a big part of what a lot of programs at this level do. You know, Duke's not getting fifth-year transfers. They're getting the blue-chip one-and-done guys. But at this level, if you can get a guy with experience to come in and bolster your program for a year, a lot of times it can help you out a lot. Think about what Tremaine Isabel as a transfer did for Drexel last year. So maybe you, maybe you, you catch catch something with, with that, with having an extra spot open without Walker. That could be a silver lining of it. The last thing I want to ask you on this, Jake, is you know this is the second transfer now this offseason. Obviously, the big one was Ryan Daly at the end of the spring, March, and then eventually in April he decides he's going to St. Joe's. Uh, but it seems to be a kind of a theme, and it's probably this way for a lot of programs. But you think back a year before that, Javarsky Corbett transfers from the program. You think about what happened with the coaching change. You lose Corey Holden. You lose Maurice Jeffers. There's now a little bit of a, a trend, a path of, of guys leaving the program. And it is a little bit sudden to lose a guy November 1st with game one being five days away. What does that say about you know the state of Delaware as a program and as a team? Is it is it a fluke? Is it more of a trend that you expect to see moving forward? How do you kind of take that? You see it a lot with these middle-of-the-pack CAA teams, and especially the CAA as a whole. Um, when the, the CAA is a competitive basketball league, and when players are probably not happy with where they are, uh, they have a lot of opportunities to go to because there are very good players in the CAA, and even the bottom-of-the-barrel CAA players are still able to find yeah. places. So it's I'm not really attributing it much to the school's atmosphere rather than the school's location just on the competitive ranking, that there is some fluidity from players in and out, and there is that ability for players to get new looks places because they don't have to worry that, is the team going to want me? Am I going to find a place? I'm not too worried. I was a little worried with Daly because I feel like we gave him everything he could have wanted. I mean, we gave him a team. Right. When you think about his story, right? Yeah. He didn't have any offers. He comes in on Inglesby's first day, right, back yeah. in May, and not only gets an opportunity to play, but he ends up playing 40 minutes a game by yeah. the end of the season. CAA Rookie of the Year, and yeah, I believe he was all CAA B, second team? Second yeah, second, second or third team. He, he all CAA. Yeah, he got the honor. Um, so that's why I was I was a little <coughs> more worried on Daly because we gave him a lot. But I don't think this is a big thing for anyone to really look into. So, Ky- excuse me. So Kyrie Walker steps away from the program. He will be transferring to where we don't know yet. Uh, don't even know if he will play this season with how close it is to the start for most teams. So no Kyrie Walker this year for Delaware. That's the news about a half hour ago announced by the team in an email press release. Delaware season starts just five days from now with a road matchup against Maryland on the 6th. That's next Tuesday. Jake, you and I are going to College Park to make that call. I'm excited. What do you expect out of the Blue Hens there? That's, I mean, that's, first of all, for us, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a new atmosphere, a place we haven't gone before. Uh, but also on the floor. You can take both of those things. What are you expecting from that trip on Tuesday? I mean, it is one of the best places to watch a basketball game. I have a lot of friends there, and... I have the blessing of seeing the stadium from all different angles wherever they're sitting. I have friends in the press box. I have friends on the top uh, seats, friends on the court level. And when you look at it, it's just kind of like that Virginia Tech football game we went to where everybody there 
is not there to socialize. They're not there to talk to each other. They're there to watch a basketball game and they're there to cheer Maryland on. So that's why I'm excited to kind of go because Delaware basketball started to slowly gain a little bit momentum last year. I think especially the women's team kind of filled the stands a little bit more and more as the season went on. But this I expected to be sold out. It's they're both first games of the season. Okay, I was about to ask you if you knew if it was Maryland's yeah, first I think, game. I think it's Maryland's first game of the season as well. I expect it to be fully sold out. Maryland knows how to party, uh, so I expect it to be just a great atmosphere. And game-wise, I think this is going to go better than Notre Dame. And I think Notre Dame went really well for the first half. We kept it close. Were we down by four or five heading into half? It was a two-score game. I think we're going to play them a bit better. Maryland has a little bit more depth. They can stretch the floor a little more. But I think skill-wise, we're a lot more matchup friendly than we were for Notre Dame. Not that it necessarily matters a whole lot at this point in the season, but I was thinking about it earlier today, and I really didn't have a clear answer. If you had to project who we're going to see as the starting five Tuesday, what would you say? Again, no Ryan Allen to begin the season. He's out for at least two months after having foot surgery a couple of weeks ago. Kyrie Walker, a couple, not even an hour ago, is no longer with the team. If you had to give a five, where would you go? I think we we'll, can both say we'll Eric Carter. Eric Carter is going to be at the five. Mm-hmm. You're going to get Kevin, Kevin Anderson, Anderson at the one. Jacob Cushing. Okay, so you um, think Cushing at, at about the four? I well, uh, yeah, and I'm not saying that because I think he's the best. I just think, like you said, he's we don't have before. anyone. Yeah, yeah, he's played before. You trust your guy, and you trust him on the big stage. Um, does Darian did, Bryant I, start? Yeah, game one. He, got, he got better as the season went on. I'll put Darian Bryant. Did in. he though? I mean, he's, I mean, he was he is who he awful is. in the middle of the season. Yeah, but he finally remembered how to put the ball in the basket. And I don't really have a word on Colin Goss. I think he's. I don't think you play him and Carter at the same time if they want to go to. So I guess I, th- I think the he's next... just. I think he's going to take the Sky Johnson minutes yeah. behind Carter. So then, well, the, who are the other returners? Lochner. Well. Roof. You get to yeah. you get to the freshman now. Ethel Horton. Ethel Horton's probably the and best Matt guess. Barreto, the six seven forward, or Ryan Johnson, the fifth year transfer guard. Eric, um, Coach Anglesey was a very impressed with Horton. So I think because somebody needs to fill that Gets extra guard at, spot, at the guard, you need to have somebody, somebody next to Kevin Anderson. And shoot yeah, a little bit because you're fine like down see, low. I think I'd like to see him. I mean, there's no to me. There's no upside of giving like Darian Bryant thirty five minutes. Yeah. Throw a rookie in, in there. Let him play. play. I think. I think without Allen, give give Horton some minutes. Give Ryan Johnson, a new guy to the program, some minutes. Yeah, especially in, in a big spot, like you know, give, give him a shot. I wouldn't expect. There's not going to lose in this game on Tuesday. Inglesby, everybody should get play time against Maryland. This shouldn't be a game like it was against Notre Dame, given the bench wasn't as deep as it. And it was later in is. the season too. Yeah, where Inglesby only went six deep, and that was kind of it for the rest of the season. But this is a game where everybody should get play time because it's against a competitive team. It's the first game of the year. And you, you said before, what's there to lose? We don't play well, and we lose against Maryland. That's what we okay. all expect anyway. That's the plan. Yeah. Or they make it work, and we get a competitive game with all the players. So play them all and let them see it. See how they do. Again, that's Tuesday night, a 7.30 tip-off. We'll start our pregame coverage right here on 91.3 at about 7.15. Jake and I on the call. Delaware begins their men's basketball 2018-2019 campaign Tuesday against Maryland. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. We expected to start our show today with Delaware football, who of course is coming off a huge 47 to 36 upset victory last weekend against Towson. We do have a full podcast with reaction from that game the day after with Josh Deal and I, but Jake, of course you weren't on there. So I want to get your thoughts and perspective on what we believed 
was a pretty momentous win for Delaware last weekend. I have been able to see a lot of great sporting events in my life. I've seen them live. I saw the huge Amari Stoudemire putback dunk. I saw that whole game where he dropped third, fifth, what was it, like 40 plus on the Suns on the return game. <coughs> I've seen Stony Brook against Delaware. I've seen Richmond against Delaware. And now this Towson versus Delaware game is up there for one of the best sporting events I've been able to see. I was in the stands. My dad and my uncle and my sister were all there, so we were all watching it together. And as the game kind of went on, um, especially in the middle of that second quarter, my dad was like, you know what? They played hard. They fought, but mm-hmm. you can't stop b- you throw both. The, you throw the ball over yeah. the punter's head. You made a mistake, and now— You can't stop Flacco and Shane Simpson in the same stop. Yeah. You can't do them both. But then the third quarter came on, and the crowd started to kind of get back into it after the few— blown calls kind of had them sitting back in their seats and then they started to realize okay we're kind of getting back into it and then he hits papali in the end zone and that's where the entire stadium was like all right there's not that much time on the clock we have a lead it's finally game time and you saw the entire population of the stadium while it wasn't even half sold out because it was a gross day everybody was on their feet and everyone was watching that game so i thought it was a great game a great win and probably has the most impact of any game that I've seen for Delaware football. What do you think of Pat Kehoe and the Blue Hens passing offense in the second half? 300-plus outing for Pat Kehoe. He was 200-something of that came in the second half. 240. Yeah, 240 yards in the second half because the run game wasn't going too well and because Towson was able to run the ball with Shane Simpson, and you saw it exponentially in that third quarter. All they did was run it to Shane Simpson and pushed it down the field. Delaware couldn't counter with the run because Towson was doing all the clockwork. Right, you're not going to catch up by 12. Yeah, so they they go to the air. He made some really great plays, really nice floaters to Charles Scarf on the side of the end zone to convert two first downs. And then that Papali touchdown, I thought Kehoe was great. Was it his best um, mechanics performance that I've seen so far? No, but it was probably his best game so far. Yeah, and the Towson defense is not by any means one of the better defenses in the CAA. But I think you give Delaware a lot of credit for the adjustments they were able to make at halftime, coming out much more aggressive with the downfield passing game. The weather kind of coincided with that, right? It's stopped raining. There was not a lot of wind as we get later on in the evening. And they start just finding these guys running wide open down the field. Joe Walker sprints by his defensive back on that 30-yard completion up the sideline. Mm-hmm. You get the 49-yarder to Vinny Papali right at the beginning of the second half that starts to get the offense going. You mentioned seen like Scarf and Papali really working those corner routes to the sidelines for finding a weak spot in the zone, and Kehoe made all the throws that were there. And I think that's all that we've wanted from a Delaware quarterback these past few seasons is just a guy to make the plays that are there. And now you're starting to see them make some plays that aren't there too. You start to see him make a couple of anticipation throws, making a couple throws under pressure in these last couple of games. And that's really started to take Delaware to another level to where I believe now, you know, this coming into the season is kind of already playoffs or bust, but as we go to these next three weeks, it's almost, it, it would be a monumental, I don't even know how to describe it if they didn't make the playoffs at this point, it seems. Coming out of that game, you look at these next three, you'd expect them to win two of three, and you'd expect that's what they need to get to that eight and three record, the six and two record that almost assuredly gets CAA teams into the 2014 playoff. And that's what we were talking about because they win this, their next few games, Albany, Stony Brook, Villanova. Those are all winnable games. And I would almost— Especially Albany and Villanova. Yeah, and I 
I still don't think Stony Brook's that good, and I think it's going to bite me in the butt when I go down there to call the game because I'm almost going to be floored when they put some sort of competition, especially on the ground against the Blue Hen team because that's how they're going to win the football game. They're going to run the ball. Um, but I think this... I said it was winning get in last show, and I think this was the winning get in game. I think Delaware's made themselves into a playoff team, and I think every other team in the conference, all those up top with them, have firsthand experience. Towson and Elon lost to Delaware, and JMU played them last year. And while there's a bit of turnover from both teams, they all know that Delaware is here to play. So not only was this a great game on the score sheet, but it was a great game morale wise, because now yeah. every team is starting to finally realize all right, we can't keep Delaware down forever in the polls. We kind of have to give them some respect. And now they're getting some of that respect. Yesterday evening, the FCS playoff committee released their top 10. So it's not the typical top 25 voters. It's the actual playoff committee gets together, gives a top 10 that they won't update until the end of the season. So this is really our only glimpse at what they're thinking at this point. And they put Delaware 10th. They put JMU 2nd. They put Elon 5th. Delaware was 3rd out of CAA teams at 10th. They're currently 13th in the stats FCS top 25, and they're 11th in the Sagrin ratings. That was one of the places that Rocco made a case for them over New Hampshire last year. That takes into account the strength of schedule as well as margin of victory, not just wins and losses and overall record. So at this point in the season, we talk about them a couple of weeks ago getting into the top 25 for the first time. Now they are amongst those teams that we're talking about as a first-round buy. We're talking about as actually getting beyond just a playoff entrance, but games into the playoffs. And I think that is not necessarily the new level of expectation for this team, but it's what this team has shown through those wins against Elon and Towson that they could be capable of. And I'm glad they put Elon above us. I'm glad Elon was, even though we beat them, and while we beat them handily and they did not have a starting quarterback and a starting running back, we still beat them, um... I'm glad that they're ahead of us because for multiple reasons. One, we're going to be the underdog and we're going to have that fight that says, all right, there's a team that we beat that's above us again. Might as well do the same work. And two, because it probably helps us in matchups because us as a fairly low seed, quote unquote low seed, even though we will be 10th in the tournament, we're going to get a middle of the pack-ish type team, uh, probably a little on the higher end. And that's a team we can play, especially if they put Elon at five. The competition in between Elon and us can't be... JMU style, can't be North Dakota State style. So we're going to get a middle-of-the-pack team on the first round. So I'm excited for that. That's either a definite winnable ball game or it's going to be a game kind of like a Stony Brook or a game kind of like a Richmond where they're competitive football teams, but we should be able to get the job done. Elon is, like you mentioned, without their starting quarterback, Davis Cheek, for now the rest of the season. He tore his ACL in that game against Delaware, so he's not played since. And today it came out that Malcolm Summers, their running back, who – at the time that Delaware faced Elon, led the CIA in rushing. He is out for the season. He tore his hamstring, which he tore last season, about this point in the year. So he's done for the year. In the two games since the Delaware matchup, Elon's gone, excuse me, in the two games since Summers played, so Delaware plus their last weekend, they've gone one and one. Their backup quarterback and running backs had pretty good performances last week against Richmond, although we know how porous a defense that Spiders team has at this point, Delaware put 43 on them a couple weeks ago. That's all they are. Yeah, so so we'll take those numbers with a grain of salt from their backups. Uh, Jalen Thomas, the running back, had 150 yards against the Spiders. But, but, (coughs) excuse me again, but as you were mentioning, kind of you liking them being an underdog, to me that's probably a good thing too because 
you look now at this Albany matchup coming off a huge win against Towson, and it's something that Josh and I talked a lot about at the end of the Delaware Football Roundup podcast, you really need to guard against one of those letdown games or trap games, whatever you want to call it. Towson. If, if you, yeah, exactly. If you remember back to last year, it was a week earlier, Delaware, homecoming weekend, late afternoon game, just like this Towson game, goes into double overtime and beats Richmond 42 to 35 or 43 to 35. They beat them by a touchdown in double overtime. It puts them into the top 25 for the first time this season. Richmond was ranked 11th at that point in the year. Towson this past weekend was ranked 10th coming into the game. So very similar circumstances. And the following week, they go on the road to Towson to a team that they were favored to beat, and they lose 18-17. to 17. Made multiple mistakes. And Sam, Sam Callahan, Callahan makes rips this the phenomenal catch. And before you know it, Delaware is not in the playoffs. I will say I think this Delaware team's far better than they oh, were yeah. last season at this point. And I do think Albany is probably a little bit worse than Towson was at this point last season. But how do you do that? How do you guard against a letdown game, a trap game like this, going on the road against a team that has nothing to lose when they're going up to play? Albany's 2-6 and six overall and 1-5 and five in CAA play. Against Towson, Delaware had something to prove, not only in the win column, but on the field. They showed that they are no longer this 50-40 touch-on-the-ground team, just keep running it, and if it's a third down and 10, I guess we'll throw it. They showed... At Towson, they can throw the ball. They're a two-sided team. They can run and they can throw. So when you go to Albany, you don't really need to stretch out of your comfort zone anymore. You don't have anything else to prove rather than the record. So to prevent against that little trap game, go back to the run. Just keep it on the ground. Just win it. You don't need to get fancy. You don't need to have 400 passing yards and five receiving touchdowns. Just give it to Kanai Kane. Give it to Lee. Let let the defense make a couple plays. Joe Walker was... Very impressive. While the stat sheet might have not shown it, he was very smart with the football in that Towson game. Uh, And we didn't didn't talk a lot about Vinny Papali. Yeah. Dude comes away with eight catches, 142 yards, and two touchdowns, all three career highs. Yeah, it was a great game for him. Um, Just play it smart. Albany's not going to be—I don't think Albany's going to be the trap game. I think Stony Brook's more— uh, trap game prone uh, while it is even kind of then, more like, competitive. Yeah, I would say like if they lose that, Sonny Brooks a good team too. Yeah, you know, just Mo- go back to your roots. Give it to Lee. give it to Lee. Give it to Kanai Kane. Let him run on a third and ten. Look for a scarf, and you're going to call it a day. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. NFL trade deadline starting to in the last couple of years become more and more interesting. It's starting to become a little bit more like the baseball tra- trade deadline or the baseball trade deadline. I guess you can make the argument is becoming more like the football trade deadline where they're being a little more tentative and NFL teams are being a little bit more aggressive in spending draft picks and other capital to make midseason improvements. We also, I would say, see more separation from teams at this point in the season than we have maybe five or ten years ago. So, you know, you you see, okay, in the NFC, you got the Rams, you got the Saints, you got maybe the Vikings, a couple other teams, but then you have so many teams that seasons are basically over that could stand to benefit from trading a few of these names away that we're going to discuss in a couple of moments. Jake, let's start with the wide receivers. Demarius Thomas, the first to go. What did you think of that move? I love it. For both teams, the Broncos weren't going to pay him his $14 million contract at the end of this year. He's a great outside receiver. He's getting a little older. Emmanuel Sanders is really reaching full uh, peak performance right now. They probably weren't going to sign him for his $14 million deal. The Texans lost their backup. Well, not necessarily the backup. Their number two guy in Will Fuller to an ACL injury. The Texans are competing. Deshaun Watson, about as talented as any of these young quarterbacks, and he needs a different look. You have DeAndre Hopkins, who can basically catch with anything, 
but at some point you need to be able to look to a second option. And I think it was great that they brought in Demarius Thomas. They get a little more veteran leadership. The Broncos clear some cap space, get a fourth round draft pick, and they'll be able to look towards next year. The AFC South is anybody's to win. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're if you're Houston, I think why not go for it and get a guy who's going to help you offensively, hopefully get the ball out of Deshaun Watson's hands a little bit quicker. Yeah. He's really been getting beat up behind a not very good offensive line. And I was also thinking about this as a little side note. I guess maybe a month ago at this point, we did our list of the top 10 playmakers. And I don't think DeAndre Hopkins made it at least onto my list or maybe the group's list. I think list. I had him. He's got to be up. He's got to be top five at this point. Yeah. He he is, if not the best wide receiver in football, mm-hmm. he's one of. You know, you make the argument for Adam Thielen. He's obvious. He's got 100 receiving yards in every game. Yeah. I don't think you can dispute that right now. You could make the argument for guys like Odell Beckham and maybe even Antonio Brown. But the, the DeAndre Hopkins is, is something else. That catch he makes, though it was called back, the one between yeah. his legs is insane. A couple of weeks before, the I guess it was the primetime game, he does the two spins. There's not anything that this guy can't catch. Probably one of the biggest catch radiuses in football. Yeah, and especially for uh, a young quarterback and a quarterback that you mentioned it's a weak offensive line, but to add on to it, it's just pounded with injuries. Yeah. That is almost twice the reason why he should get the ball out of his hands even faster because the second that hit comes, and I'm very nervous, and it's also funny to note that Demarius Thomas's first game in a Houston Texans uniform was up against the Broncos, but <laughs> I'm nervous for Watson. Because he's going to play the Denver Broncos. And the one thing that the Denver Broncos are known for is Rushing hitting. the quarterback. And hitting them yeah. hard. You have Von, Von Miller, Miller on one side, and that's all you really need to know. So it's going to be a tough matchup. I kind of hope for Deshaun Watson's safety he gets out of there. But nonetheless, a great trade for both teams. And I think that's probably the best trade of the deadline. Remember back when Josh McDaniels was the Broncos quarterback, and they or, uh, excuse me, head coach, and they drafted Demarius Thomas in the first round. Mm-hmm. In the same year, they drafted Tim Tebow in the yeah. first round. That's the type of longevity that Thomas has had in, in the NFL, and now he makes it to his second team so far in his long career. Let's move on to our second deal. It was the one I teased before the break. Golden Tate, the Detroit Lions wide receiver, gets traded to Philadelphia for a third-round pick in the 2019 draft. Now, a little extra component of this. Most people, at least around the Eagles that I've been following, expect that Philadelphia will get a compensation pick which would come in the fourth or fifth round, not this year, but next year. If Tate leaves the team in free agency this offseason, that's a big part of the argument against giving up a third-round pick for him because his contract does expire at the end of this year, and he is 30 years old at this point. But Jake, talk about what you think Golden Tate will bring the Philadelphia Eagles and whether he was worth the price for them. Let me first say that this trade was not supposed to happen. Golden Tate was supposed to be a New England Patriot, and everything was supposed to be okay. I got the notification, and I got excited. And I was talking to my friends, and I was like, if Golden Tate becomes a Patriot, and Jacob deGrom stays a Met, I'll be the happiest man on the face of the earth. Half of that has happened, and I'm proud of that. But Golden Tate has hey, now baseball, went to the enemy. Baseball offseason has not really yet even begun. Well, so. they the new Mets GM says deGrom's <laughs> here to stay forever, which I, I'm happy about. But... Golden Tate and then goes to the enemy. But I absolutely love the trade for the Eagles. They are in desperate need of a middle-of-the-field man. Alshon Jeffrey is great. Zach Ertz can only do so much. And Nelson Aguilar is kind of falling out of sorts, but that's what happens when Jeffrey's healthy and Zach Ertz is turning on all cylinders. Golden Tate had a 30% target share on the Lions. And for those that might not think that's a lot, that is absolutely absurd to have 30% of your team's targets. He goes... 
to the Eagles, and he's going to line up in the slot almost every time. I would. I don't assume they push him out wide. I assume they let him stay in the slot. He'll likely play the slot with Nelson Aguilar taking more snaps outside than yeah. he did before. And Carson Wentz loves that slot guy. He's successful with it. The RPOs feed the slot guy more times than not, and you have a great after-the-tackle guy. On the Detroit Lions side of the ball, they kind of just waved the white flag. I I think that division is now the Chicago Bears against the Vikings and to fight for the, the win. That's what all about it is. the Packers? The Packers have not – they traded away Ty Montgomery, given they didn't need Ty Montgomery. Right. But they traded – free, free Aaron Jones. That's a, been the A versatile offensive player for them. And they traded away their probably most dynamic player besides Aaron Rodgers and Haha Clinton Dix. He was a great defensive player. You'd say Devontae, but like I get your point. Yeah, you look at these com- competitive teams. The Rams got better after the trade deadline. The Eagles got better after the trade deadline. The Packers got worse after the trade deadline. And I get it. It's Aaron Rodgers. We shouldn't panic. He's going to get it done anyway. Relax. Yeah, just relax. He's going to run the table. But I don't know if Green Bay's really has their mind around how good the Vikings are, how good the Bears are, because they're all making these moves. But on the Detroit side of the ball, Marvin Jones is going to get more targets. Kenny Gall- they're, this, they're, they got to get Kenny Galladay yeah, back going. They're just making sure Kenny, Kenny Galladay is good. Kenny kind of fallen out of favor the last couple of weeks. His second-round pick in 2017, decent rookie year, started off this year as maybe their number one. Yeah, uh, He really started this year strong. Then, it, more recently, it's been a lot of Marvin Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think for them, like, why not get a third-round pick? Because They're done. I don't they're think pretty Golden much Tate, done, at least. They're done. Golden Tate's probably not a part of your long-term plans at no. this point. Um, and for the Eagles side, I see the case against it. The case against it is this team, with or without Golden Tate, is not good enough to win a Super Bowl this year. And moving forward, Carson Wentz is going to command one of those massive quarterback deals, and you're going to need every young, inexpensive, controllable player that you can have. So don't give up the third-round pick. They're going to they- get slapped on the— Paycheck book, actually, now that I think about it. it you also have a hurts bunch of contract, contracts coming up. Right, so so that's that's the case against it, right, is you need to hit on all of these mid-round draft picks in order to replenish what's going to leave the team in coming seasons. Brandon Graham's a free agent at the end of the year. Nelson Aguilar could leave the team in the defensive secondary. There's already problems to address, but Rodney McLeod is a free agent at the end of the season. You'd probably like to add a corner in place of Ronald Darby, who's a free agent at the end of the season. The list goes on. You get my point. The offensive line as well has problems or areas that you'd like to address there. But the inverse of that is look at what teams get with a third-round pick, right? Like the third-round pick, sure, everybody's saying that could be Kareem Hunt. But that third-round pick more often than not is Daniel Teo Neshemin or Rasul Douglas, who they refuse to put on the field, right? So <laughs> You keep hearing his name, and he just does, hasn't done anything yet. Exactly. They, they get Dexter McDougal off the street, and they'd rather play him 95% of the snaps as the nickel corner than Rasul Douglas, who they've had on the team for a year and a half now, who's a Super Bowl champion. That's beside the point. But you, a third-round pick is not a guarantee that you're going to get one of these young guys. So I say, why not throw, you know, go for it while you can, while this core is here. There are going to be problems in the future. Every NFL team's window to compete for a Super Bowl is not 10 years. It might only be these couple of years while they still have these guys in tow. But as long as you have Carson Wentz, I think you put as many weapons as you can around him. You go for it, and you know they're the, still the favorites to win that division. And once you make it to the playoffs, there's no telling what could happen. Yeah. You, you just have to get on a run in the playoffs like they did last year with Nick Foles as the quarterback. They might be in a better position this year. Obviously, a lot has to change. They have to fix a lot of things schematically. 
But I think if you can get better in any way at this point at the deadline, I think you do that if you're the Eagles. You take that risk, and I think that's what they do with this Golden Tate trade. I don't think he's the best fit exactly for their offense at this point, but if they can adapt, if they get the ball out a little bit quicker, maybe more of what the Patriots do with that quick strike, just getting the ball out to the perimeter to Julian Edelman, to Chris Hogan, that could really benefit them with the deficiencies they have on the offensive line and really start to get them going in the right direction. They just have to win those divisional games, get into the playoffs, and then we'll see from there. The thing about Golden Tate is you know what you're going to get with him. He's a great yards after contact runner. You saw it when they played the Cowboys. He absolutely destroyed them after contact. And an interesting note about him is that Golden Tate has actually taken a lot of snaps in the backfield the last two weeks for Detroit. And given Golden Tate's not going to be the starting running back of the Philadelphia Eagles. They could use one, though. But the Eagles are really desolate. That they're, they have nobody in the backfield. I mean, that's Yeah, that's an area of need that a lot of people talked about them perhaps addressing via yeah. trade. And I don't think Golden Tate's necessarily um, addressing it, but he could be a bandage. He's all capable of well, taking if, a few you, snaps on a jet if sweep. If you take – exactly. If you take like five carries from that backfield away and you turn them into a screen pass, a jet sweep, something that's an extension of your running game by just getting a guy out in space and picking up four or five yards, that could be yeah. extremely beneficial. That's That's what Kansas City does. That's what the Rams have been doing. It's not all necessarily power right, power left. Sure, those plays – factor into the equation at some point, but it's a lot of jet sweep. It's a lot of RPO. It's a lot of screen, bubble screen. And that's what Golden Tate does very well. A lot of his targets come within five yards of the line of scrimmage. Yeah. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. A lot has been discussed already about this offseason. It's been one that many teams have planned for for the past three, four, maybe five years in advance to make sure that they were in a position to be big players this offseason because Uncharacteristically, there are a few legitimate superstar players that are available, and not just available, but available at the beginning of the prime of their careers in Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, who both enter free agency at the age of 25 and 26, respectively. Typically, when you get big-name free agents out there, they come in at maybe 28 at the earliest, but typically they're 29, 30, or 31. So when you sign them to these big six- or seven-year deals— you get two or three, maybe four prime years if you're lucky, and then you're paying outsized contracts as that salary continues to increase for lesser production as they go into the decline of their career. Think about Albert Pujols. Think about perhaps Robinson Cano, Nelson Cruz. Chris Davis is kind of a maybe even an uncharacteristic example. That was a cliff he fell off of, not just a decline, but you get the point. These guys aren't projected to do that. If you sign them to a five- or six-year deal, you're going to get five or six prime years. You're going to get from 26 to 31 or from 25 to 30. There are a lot of players in this, but as you, with a lot still to be decided, as you give an outlook, as you look out to the teams that will be players for both Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, what are you expecting to see? How do you think this could play out. You don't have to give me one scenario. You can kind of give me a few, but how do you think this is going to play out as we move forward to the offseason? I want to read a little excerpt. Somebody five years ago put out a prediction for Bryce Harper, and he this person wrote, Bryce Harper is going to be a generational player with an unprecedented track record that includes multiple MVPs, a World Series ring, and a guarantee of 500 home runs. All of that means a $500 million contract. It's not quite here yet. He is still an unreal talent, an an uber-generational talent. And I said it before, I think he stays put. 
I don't think he goes anywhere. There's no reason to go anywhere. The Washington Nationals are again probably going to be the preseason favorites. There's no reason to believe he doesn't stay. Other than that, the teams he might go to are the Dodgers. They all have room for him, depending on what they do with Kershaw and Machado, and the Phillies. That's probably the other big-name team that's at least expressed interest in him, so he's going to stay in the National League, stay in some familiar names, stay in some competitive teams. So I think best case, or my best case for Bryce Harper is he stays put. On the other end... Let me let me counter that. Let's yeah. stick with Harper at first. Does Washington pay up? Do they offer him the three or $400 million contract that he will likely request? If he says 300 probably. If he sticks on his button and says, I want 400 I don't – I wouldn't be surprised if Washington pays, but I don't think they would. Okay, now let's move on to Machado. He gets traded midseason from Baltimore to Los Angeles. The Dodgers are expected to be players, but they also might not really have a spot for him because Corey Seager comes back to play shortstop and Justin Turner is still there at third. What do you see with Machado? Yankees. <coughs> the only place I see him going to New York because they just found out their shortstop and Didi had Tommy Johns. Uh, they are a team that is like you'd be surprised how much room the Yankees have in cap space. Their players. Well, they're. they're should specify there's no cap in baseball or, there's a luxury tax, a luxury tax I but say. teams can go over that luxury tax Whenever so long as their owner is willing to pay an additional percentage of their salary yeah. to the league so the more years in a row that you're over that luxury tax the higher that the luxury tax becomes for you so you're continually penalized for holding that big salary which is viewed as a competitive advantage for, but, your, for your Yankees. But, for, oh, your, for the Dodgers, yeah. So, But you can go over. And one of the things that the Dodgers have done is before, I guess, 2017 season, not this season, but the season before, they were well over the luxury tax. Adrian Gonzalez was one of those contracts. Matt Kemp was one of those contracts. Even Clayton Kershaw contributes to that contract. They specifically got under the luxury tax before this season, not because they didn't want to pay it, but because they knew this, this is gonna be season, a big one. they were going to be over. So they didn't want to be over for two straight years because in the next couple of years after that, they're going to be over two. So they tried to save some money luxury tax-wise by going under before this season. They still had the biggest payroll in the National League, I believe. So the Yankees, going back to them, they are actually well under the luxury tax. The Red Sox outspent the Yankees by a fair margin yeah. this season. So they have plenty to go deal with as far as Machado contract or even a Bryce Harper contract. Machado's going to say, I want $30 million a year. I think the Yankees, if that's the offer, I think they take it. Um, I think they're not going to sign him for a deal longer than two years, um, and Machado might not be very happy with that because he wants a long-term deal with some money involved, but they have Didi coming back. There's Well, what if, what if somebody gives him eight years in that cash, and it's not in New York? Does he go somewhere else? It's hard to like, believe. Let's say it's a like an eight would. year with like a opt out after four. For it's the hard to believe a team would, but if some team gives him that contract, I think regardless of team, Manny Machado is going to jump on that. He plays pretty good defense. He's a solid defenseman. Well, also, what position do you think he'd play with the Yankees? Because he, he's graded out far better as a third baseman defensively than he yeah. has as a shortstop. I think that well, they're going to get him to be a shortstop for the, the Yankees specifically, mm-hmm. and when and that's where he wants D, to play when Didi comes back. They'll the have to slide and him do hard first, yeah, and then kind of play around with that because I mean you kind of like Austin Romine in the 
happy medium between catcher first base position, but I don't. They, that's how the Yankees have figured themselves out. Uh, if the team offers him eight years, two hundred forty, no doubt about it, he'll sign. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Earlier on the show, we talked through some of the NFL trade deadline moves, including Golden Tate being dealt to the Eagles from Josh's Detroit (sighs) Lions. We got the Eagles perspective here. Josh, I'm putting you on the spot, though. What do you think of the deal from the Detroit Lions perspective? What does Deal think of the deal? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Third round pick was um, pretty decent. It's an eight-game loaner. So, um, you know, for a team that has Marvin Jones, who was being, I mean, he's there on a four-year deal, second year of a four-year deal. I think he's making somewhere upwards of $10 million a year. And he was being stifled by Tate and the emergence of Kenny Galladay. Um, and so now they've got Gall- uh, they've got Galladay as the the red zone threat, and Marvin Jones who can really stretch the <laughs> stretch the field. And then of course uh, they've got T.J. Jones now who can play in the slot as, re- as as well as Brandon Powell. So from a Lions perspective, Matt Patricia, I think he knows what he's doing. They've also got Bob Quinn who is a former executive for the Patriots. So uh, they're trying to build a system the Patriots way, to be completely honest. And right. You know, we all know the revolving doors of wide receivers that in, that goes on up in Foxborough. So, I mean, for getting a third round pick for Golden Tate, he was a fan favorite. So it's obviously it's going to be hard to see him leave. But um, from a production standpoint, Marvin Jones can step up into his shoes. He just has to drop the ball less than he has been. All right, I'm going to throw it to Jake now. You explained this game to me before. I think I understand it, but Josh has not had the game explained Ooh. to him. So we're kind of going on the spot here. It's a new game. We haven't done it before. Jake's going to take the lead on it, uh, but please explain to us and to our listeners what's about to go down here. So how it works is I'm going to make a statement. It's going to be an NFL statement that is not surefire. I'm not going to be saying that the Patriots are going to win the AFC East or that the Rams are going to win their division because those are pretty self-explanatory. I'm going to be making something that can be taken from both sides. You can argue for and against. And your job, both Brandon and Josh, is to change my mind one way or another. <laughs> okay. I put it in the dock. Hashtag change Jake's mind. All right. We're going to start off. You can't put. You gotta. You can't do the apostrophe in a hashtag. If you're, I know. When I put the apostrophe in a hashtag, and I would totally cancel it out. The first statement It'd just be change Jake <laughs> that, I, that I'm going to make. And while I might not believe it, I'm doing this for conversational purposes. That the Los Angeles Chargers are going to win the AFC. Ooh, and and you it, you said to me before we're not supposed to take outside factors. Yeah, so when I say like the so Chargers, I can't just say well the the Patriots are in the AFC. Yeah, you can. I mean, you can bring that up, but your main focus should be on the Chargers. You should try to convince okay. me that the Chargers are are not going to win the AFC. Not that the Patriots are going to win the AFC. If that made any sense, I you think it made sense. Winning the AFC, as in they're going to be representing them for the, the AFC Super Bowl. and the Super Bowl. Okay. Um, I think that Melvin Gordon's health is going to play a lot into this. Obviously, he didn't play the last game, and I don't think Austin Eckler, though, he has come in um, you know, and kind of spelled out Melvin Gordon for a while. I don't think that the that tandem of running backs is going to sustain them through, uh, through a, a playoff <laughs> run that could have them go against the Rams, Patriots, or Chiefs. Um, I think that Phillip Rivers will never win a championship. I think he's just the, the style of quarterback who will throw for 4,500 yards a year. And as much as it hurts me to say this, I think it's very similar to a Matthew Stafford in Detroit where he can throw for a ton of yards, get a bunch of touchdowns, uh, but he will never be the leader that is desired. I think he's too much of a crybaby, in, in my opinion. Um, and I think, that I think that their wide receiver core, um, though they have some options, I don't think that it's it's strong enough as it stands, and that's just from an offensive perspective, um, 
but I think that that's in in the AFC. That's what you're looking at. You've got these high powered offenses, and I think that they are are third when it comes to that, um, simply behind the Chiefs and the Rams. I'm going to say they don't think they represent the AFC because I'm not sure if, that they're in the playoffs. They're not going to win their division in the AFC West. I think they do have a good chance at a wild card at this point, but there's no way they're going to catch the Chiefs. I agree with what Josh said about the offense. So I'll bring up the defense which everybody will point to Joey Bosa and use that as a reason to say why this is a decent defense, but it's not. Right now they're 18th in the league in DVOA, defense-adjusted value over average. So that's basically an all-encompassing measure of a defense's value above replacement level. So football is equivalent to wins above replacement, if you will. Um, that's that's not going to get it to the Super Bowl. Even the Patriots last year on that run that they made through the AFC – had a higher defensive value than that. They made enough plays on the run. Obviously, in the Super Bowl, they gave up a lot of yardage and points. But on the run, they limited Jacksonville, and they did enough to allow that offense an opportunity to win at the end of games. And I don't think the Chargers' defense is going to be able to do that throughout the course of this season and into the playoffs, should they make it to the playoffs. The next one's going to be a little bit... Did we change your mind? I think you did change my mind. I think Brandon changed my mind from what I was already thinking. I mean... (laughs) Next one's going to be a numerical thing. Todd Gurley currently at 15 touchdowns on pace for 30. My bold prediction, and I want you to ask me to change my mind, is I don't think Todd Gurley breaks 25. Ooh. Mm. Total touchdowns. Total touchdowns. Is. How many games are left? We're Eight. smack in the midseason. Eight games left for the Rams. He has 15 so far. You're saying he's not going to get 10 more. Not going to get 10. I think he will. So change um, my mind. He's really good. <laughs> I mean, I like this that. Rams team is scoring a lot. They're going to be in high-scoring games this week against the Saints later on this season. I know they have the Eagles on the schedule. They're going to have to put up points. The defense has not been great so far this season. They have problems in the secondary. We talked about how they could use a little bit more on the front seven for the running game earlier in the show with the acquisition of Dante Fowler. Perhaps that helps, but the defense hasn't been perfect the last couple of weeks. Close game against Seattle that they maybe could have lost. Last week, they should have probably lost to Green Bay, but they get lucky with the Ty Montgomery fumble at the end of the game. So I think they're going to need to lean on Todd Gurley. They're going to need to score points. So I don't see a reason why he would be slowing down through the next portion of this schedule. Yeah, uh, no, he's going to score more than 10 uh, 10 touchdowns because the fantasy gods are on my side and he's in my lineup every week. Um, (laughs) No, (laughs) in all seriousness, um, he is a number one option, not only in the run game, but also in their pass game. Uh, You look at a lot of those, there are games where he'll have 91 yards rushing, 80 yards receiving. (laughs) Jared Goff looks at him like he is uh, the only option. Obviously, you've got Brandon Cooks. And you've got uh, Robert Woods there, too, and Cooper Cup and, you know, all these guys in this explosive offense. But he views Todd Gurley as a not just a dump off option or, you know, a safety valve. He views him as a number one option. And he's got receiver hands and he's got running back skills. So uh, I think he's at least going to get a rushing touchdown and a receiving touchdown in most of these games com- coming up. And, you know, maybe even, you know, three or four if, you know, if, if Jared feeds him enough. I mean, this is a team that can go out there and score six touchdowns a game, maybe even more, uh, just because Sean McVay is such an offensive superstar. Um, and his play calling is, is really second to none to anybody in that AFC, save for maybe Andy Reid with that high-powered Chiefs offense. The next one, out of the four NFL teams left in the playoffs, the youngest QB standing will be Aaron Rodgers. Ooh. So the final four teams, so the two AFC championship teams and the two NFC, NFC championship, championship teams, teams, all those quarterbacks, the youngest one will be Aaron Rodgers. I'm going to 
to me, I think I have to give you a little bit more of the why other people are like Aaron Rodgers. The case against the Packers is that there's not much around him. The offensive line's not been protecting him. He's banged up from what happened week one. The defense isn't great, and they just traded away their safety, haha, Clinton Dix. But I also have to reference just the other teams that I think will be in there ahead of them. The Rams, I think, will be in the in the championship game. So Jared Goff is younger. And in the AFC, to me, the two clear-cut best two teams are the Patriots and the Kansas City Chiefs. So Pat Mahomes is younger than Aaron Rodgers. I think those two teams will definitively make a run, and I think it comes down to them. And in the NFC, the Rams have to be the favorite at this point, so I think they're in there with the Saints probably and Drew Brees. Uh, If not, maybe it's Kirk Cousins of the Vikings, but all of those guys would be younger than Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I think it's an NFC South team that makes it to that NFC Championship game. Um, I don't see a team in the NFC North coming. I mean, I watch a lot of games out of the NFC North, and I really don't see the Vikings or the Packers or, honestly, the team that I see potentially going on a run is having Mitchell Trubisky as one of those quarterbacks in the Final Four. I mean, that's talking crazy because if you would have seen that game week one when Rodgers did get hurt, you would think, oh, my gosh, this, you know, this Bears team isn't isn't all that. But the way that this season has developed, the way that the Bears defense has kind of carried Mitchell Trubisky, the way that the Bears defense carried Rex Grossman to a Super Bowl. Uh, this is a team that's, you know, it's the monsters of the midway, man. They They are a defensive football team and they've got a lot of that swagger back and. Um, I can I can see them maybe going there too. So obviously uh, Drew Brees would be older. You know Tom Brady, if the Patriots take it, would be older. But you know, I, Goff, Mahomes, uh, Trubisky, Trubisky. <laughs> you know maybe I just made the case for him. But yeah, all those three, all three of those guys. Jake, what's the case for Aaron Rodgers being the youngest? You know what do you think happens along the road that prevents Goff, Mahomes, Trubisky? Well, you, Wentz. you, you just said it. Aaron Rodgers. I mean, he is he's as the world words of Stephen A. Smith. But there's and I never two teams in the way. NFC. Like, do you think it, something gets in the way of one of these younger yes, guys, I even think, if it is Aaron Rodgers? I think who's in? actually, I think the best team in the NFC. I, I guess the second best team in the NFC. It's hard to say the Rams aren't the best. Is the Carolina Panthers? I think Carolina Panthers is the second best team in the NFC. Uh, so I think they are going to be the one that would make it interesting um, and stop them from getting there. Uh, in that scenario, I would have say that it's going to be Aaron Rodgers against Drew Brees in the NFC and then Brady against Big Ben in the AFC. Um, but that's just Josh just me gave us an interesting <laughs> face. <laughs> First off, are, I they, mean, are the Pittsburgh Steelers making the playoffs? Yeah, of course. That division is negative. I, that division is bad. You, you're gonna tell you, me this, you this, were given love a couple weeks ago. You, you were giving love to the Ravens. And I was you so talked up the Ravens a lot. wrong. And I will say that right now. I was so wrong about the Baltimore Ravens. It hurts. You you said before this season that Joe Flacco was going to have was a gonna revitalized be in the MVP season. conversation. Whoa. I need to pull that one up. But I in said Joe Flacco was going to be better. In the conversation. You said he'd be a Pro Bowl caliber quarterback. That puts him in the conversation. I say Pro Bowl. I don't, yeah. I don't think it's in the same conversation. But conversation. I, think, I thought Joe Flacco was going to be better. I was wrong about the Ravens. I'll say it. I was wrong. I was wrong about the Ravens. The Bengals can't win. In any day that ends in a Y, I don't know why they're winning now. It's gonna someone has to win that division. It's gonna be the Steelers. Okay, to the next one. We'll go to a bit another statistical outreach, and that is Matt Ryan is going to break Peyton Manning's passing yard record. Ooh. What is he at right now? Matt Ryan is on pace to out, uh, I guess, out yard Peyton Manning by seventy-one yards. 
Currently, Matt Ryan's on pace, or he's currently at 2,335. Peyton Manning was 5,477. Go ahead, Josh. Say that. Say how many. Matt Ryan is at 2,335. Okay. Peyton Manning, 5,477. That's math. I mean, you add those two together, he's hardly getting 4,700. I mean, I know that he might have games coming up, but Julio has been raking in yards. But has he even caught a touchdown yet? Julio Jones has not caught a touchdown pass. That's, so, again, I think that that's a discussion that we brought up when we discussed the elite wide receivers in the league. And you, you literally said Julio Jones is not elite. Um, and he has yet to this day to catch a touchdown pass. Um, I don't think that Calvin Ridley is going to rake in enough yards. I don't think that Muhammad <laughs> Sanu as the third option is going to rake in that many yards. I think that they've he's got a shot to maybe eclipse 5,000, but there's no way that he's going to get 500 more yards simply because they've been relying on Ito Smith, too, not to the same extent. But, I mean, this is a team that's trying to get their running game back to a level that it was when they had Devonta Freeman and Tevin Coleman going hard. Um, no, nah, he doesn't do it. So he gets to that. 5,000, roughly 400-yard mark. He had an average about 340 passing yards per game. And Matt Ryan so far this season has four of his seven games above that mark. One of those, however, has eclipsed 400. So his average is still, it's kind of in line with that, but I don't think he will have enough big games for 500-yard performances through the course of the rest of the season for the reasons Josh mentioned to be able to really make a run for that yardage mark. The Falcons probably won't be playing meaningful football games in December, late December, early January. I think that's a factor as well. It's huge. It's a big factor. Yeah, I just, Matt Ryan's not on the level of, of Peyton Manning and that Denver Broncos team. Let's get to another one, and we'll remind everybody, you're listening to 91.3 WVUD, and this is a Change Jake's Mind segment. And it's important <laughs> Hashtag Change Jake's that the Mind. Statements change I've Jake, made, apostrophe is mind. <laughs> the statements I have made before, maybe some of my predictions, let's just say the first prediction was the New England Patriots will not win the AFC. If I make another prediction that you will have to talk about of involving the Patriots making this, uh, winning the AFC, it's just they don't correlate. The past statement I made, it doesn't because this statement is clearly out of the question. My next tape is that the only team out of the North, that's the AFC North, to make the playoffs is the Chicago Bears. NFC North. NFC North, sorry. Uh, I, I can agree with that statement. But I, have the to, game. but I have to tell you that I can't. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you why I don't. Um, as a Lions fan, there's always that optimism, just like I gave the Blue Hens three wins. Um, I think that this team is still trying to adjust. This Lions team, I should say, is still trying to adjust to... A, a certain uh, standard that was set out by Matt Patricia when he first came in, and then they got their hopes dashed by the Jets in that first game. Um, but I think that the Vikings, when Dalvin Cook comes back, uh, that's still a team who's very much in the running. Um, I think that there's always a chance that a rookie, or I guess I should say a, a young quarterback in Mitchell Trubisky, um, very little experience uh, under his belt. Um, he's played well. He's played decent. But there's always a chance that he can falter. Um, they have to figure out Tarek Cohen and uh, Jordan Howard, that running back situation. Um, and really, I think that the, the wide receiver options aren't incredible. They've got Taylor Gabriel and... Uh, Allen Robinson. Allen Robinson kind of been a from the Jags. Yeah, I mean, 
Um, anyone who picked him up in fantasy has been a little upset at him. But, uh, yeah, I think that this team, um, the defense is the best thing they've got going for them. But I think that offensively there's a lot of potential for them to run out of steam and um, become really ineffective come November or come yeah this month November and December so so I'm telling you why two teams will make it either two why two teams will make it or I guess I'll let you counteract and say why one team will make it but it's not the Chicago Bears I I guess I'll make that a I think two teams will make it and neither are the Chicago Bears I think the Minnesota Vikings and the Green Bay Packers Minnesota has started to figure out a lot offensively they did not look good against New Orleans last weekend in primetime. But before that, they have the big game from Latavius Murray. Adam Thielen has been unbelievable through the first eight games of this, seven or eight games of the season for Minnesota. And Kirk Cousins gives them more stability at that position than they had in the past couple of years with Case Keenum. Now, the defense for Minnesota is not as good as it was last year when they made that run to the NFC Conference Championship game. So that is an area for concern. For Green Bay, we talked about it before. The offensive line is not great. The defense is not very good. But Aaron Rodgers is the quarterback of that team, and they've done it before where they get to these middle-of-the-season points where people count them out, and they sneak into the playoffs at 9-7 and seven or 10-6, and six, and they make a run because they have the best quarterback in the NFL. Looking to the other divisions, it's clear one team and one team only will make it from the NFC East. I think just one team, the Rams, makes it from the West. Now, Seattle is putting together a little bit of a run. They're 4-3 and three right now, but I don't know if I really believe they have what it takes defensively to do it down the stretch this season. It leads to the Panthers, and I think they're in as the wild card if they don't eclipse the Saints, but I don't think the Falcons can make a push in the South. So I think that leaves us with one of those teams from the North being the sixth team into the playoff, with the Panthers being the fifth, a team from the NFC East, the Rams in the West, and the Saints in the South. We have two more to get to. This one is a really fun one that I kind of like. Got two more? We're now a steam. Got two more to Here fill the time. We got this. First one is that uh, assuming Todd Gurley is not in the league, so take Todd Gurley out of the equation because Todd Gurley is otherworldly. Assuming <laughs> Todd Gurley is not in the league, Adrian Peterson win- wins the rushing title. Ooh. I gotta look. I gotta look at this. Where is he right now? Currently, Todd <laughs> Gurley is leading the league with 800 rushing yeah. yards. Not the including next receiving. The closest is Zeke, right behind him at a close 619. And then there's Adrian Peterson, just about 30 yards behind at 587. I think Adrian Peterson is old. Well, yeah. that's. I don't think <laughs> that he is. Um, I think there's a potential for an injury, obviously, with any of these guys late in the season. He's taken a lot of carries. He hasn't had a full workload in a couple of seasons. I also think that Washington, they have an easy schedule. I think there's a real possibility that he is second in the league in in rushing. They have an easy schedule through the rest of the season. Uh, But they also have Philadelphia twice, who's tough against the run. They have Dallas, who's not horrible against the run. And they are going to be playing games where they are going to be down, you know, they're going to be tight late in fourth quarters where they're going to have to pass the football to try to make it into the playoffs. I think week 17 is a playoff game between the Redskins and the Eagles. So I think that slips them up a little bit. And there are a lot of other guys to kind of lead to them now that have a really good shot at this. I and mean, I think Kareem Hunt won't get there because I think Kansas City is going to sit him probably week 17. And that's why he eventually passed Gurley last year to take the title. But James Conner is going to be playing to week 17. He's going to be playing every single week for Pittsburgh. 
He's at 599, and I think Zeke Elliott's in the mix too. So I think Peterson, it would be tough for him to finish the season number two. I know Adrian Peterson won't because there's a man that exists named Saquon Barkley. Um, I think I think Peter, like this is not even in the realm of discussion. Like this isn't part of the game. But <laughs> come to the end of it, I think Adrian Peterson outrushes Saquon Barkley. I mean, at this point, he's got he's got somewhere around eighty more yards than him. Saquon's at five nineteen, Peterson at five eighty seven. So I guess it's seventy yards, uh, something like that. Seventy eight yards uh, more than Saquon right now. Um, but I think that it, Saquon might be number two. But I really think that James Conner will be the number two guy. Um, you alluded to it, um, but the thing is, he's also so vital in that passing game. Another person... He's played three downs. I mean, he is the kind of guy that you throw out there, um, and he's really... I think week one, when he came out and he played so well, and they were like, oh, wow, look at this cancer survivor who's actually a good running back. Right now, it's, wow, look at this good running back. He has proved himself not only as a receiving back, but also a running back, and that's the reason why Ezekiel Elliott will probably have a couple of games where they just don't feed him and this that offense suffers. True. Um, and then, obviously, I think that the the, the Steelers have, have to fight until the end of the season, which means that he will be playing Week 17. Um, and if, if for them to win that, NFC, or that AFC North, he needs to be playing Every single game. And so I think he he's number two. He might even be able to eclipse Todd Gurley. Same thing like you had said. Kareem Hunt passed Todd Gurley last year because they didn't play Week 17. If if Connor plays up to to standards uh, that Le'Veon Bell had set, then Connor is going to be rushing his butt off, and there's a chance that he takes that number one spot. And this is my personal favorite one, and I saw this one online. I can't take credit <laughs> for it. And it's a little absurd, so I'm going to ask you to lay off the roast of me because it seems pretty clear, but as I thought about it, it makes a bit more sense. Taking your big three out of the equation at quarterback, your Brady, Breeze, and Rogers, there's no one else I'd rather orchestrate a game-winning drive than Andrew Luck. Let me remind you that as a rookie season, Andrew Luck led the league in game-winning drives by three. Yep. He almost did it against the Patriots in the playoffs. Yep. You have your Matt Staffords of the world still out there. Almost only counts in hand. What's the thing? Hand grenades Time and horseshoes and bocce ball. I'm going to go with Patrick Mahomes. I would want him. The dude's fearless. He's ice. I know he hasn't done it, but I don't think that matters. You put him out there slinging the ball down the field. That's the guy I would take outside of the four that you mentioned at this point. Um, Andrew Luck did it against the Chiefs in the playoffs. That was one of the most ridiculous games I had ever seen in my entire life. They were down by so much. Marcus Mariota had done it. Um, Marcus Mariota was terrible. But he had done it before. I'm saying, I mean, that's he the kind of... He beat the Philadelphia Eagles. That's, this is what, what I'm saying is that there are a lot of people in the league who have led fourth quarter comebacks. He led an OT comeback on the Eagles. Fourth and 19, Marcus Mariota picked it up. Exactly. So I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of quarterbacks who can come out there and play a great game. <coughs> My guy that I'm gonna pick to lead, based off what I saw last week, give me Russell Wilson. Yeah, he's not the same. He's guy. He's not gonna get sacked. I'll tell you that. He, but he's also he's not the plays. same guy that we saw, you know, a couple years ago. And obviously, I think he knows uh, not to pass it <laughs> on. Uh, Don't pass on when, first down. When yeah, on, uh, for one yard. Sorry. Yeah, with Don't one yard one going. Yard. I mean, obviously, he doesn't have beast mode anymore. But this is a guy who obviously speedy and uh, quick out of the pocket uh, can get the ball out and sling it. And I think he has, um, I mean, 
put him in in a, in a he's been able to do that with limited weapons I should say in Seattle um, put him on any above average team if he had the Chiefs weapons Kelsey uh, Tyreek Hill you know Kareem Hunt he could have led that team to a very similar record yes and it's it's weird that the person asking the questions coming back at this it's not that Russell Wilson doesn't have weapons yeah he does. They're not the superstar weapons that he's used to. True. He has three very capable running backs behind him. Pete Carroll needs to pick one because when you put them all together, they're not good. He has a surprisingly talented tight end in Will Disley. It's important to note that he's a talented tight end. He's not what Jimmy Graham used to be. He's not Travis Kelsey. Though. He's not Travis that's, Kelsey. No, that's Josh. But point. Russell Wilson has weapons, and I think Patrick Mahomes has done a great job show- letting his weapons fly, and Wilson hasn't yet. But I think Wilson might have not been the most absurd pick out of all the quarterbacks. I think Wilson has a lot more weapons than people think he does. 